From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the quickest routes to decarbonize shipping, Siri's new capital market accelerator, why AI is suddenly in fashion at ThreadUp, and youth activists speak out at Verge. We're taking it to the streets this week on 350. It's November 1st, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me per usual from Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. November? I know. <laughs> what? Ha- I, think we, I think we skipped July, August, and September I, this year. I don't quite I know how we got so. here. <laughs> I think so. Well, hello, Joel. Yeah. Greetings. Um, Greetings. You spent part of this week, as I understand it, leaf peeping? Yes, I I played hooky in the middle of the week and went to this place called the Mohonk Mountain House. It is celebrating its 150 years of uh, existence. Um, it is on the just at the foot of the Catskill Mountains, and um, yes, a peak foliage uh, happened in the last week here in the New Jersey New York area, and uh, I I spent a lot of time hiking. I I did quite a, an extensive hike on Tuesday this week, and one of the one of those ones where you're in the middle of it, going, "Ah, this is actually more like rock climbing <laughs> than, than than hiking." But it was a wonderful, um, a wonderful just break uh, post verge and back to nature, if you will. Yeah, post verge cool. is always uh, good. Yeah, I went I went hiking too, but it was through the streets of Washington D.C. Um, I had actually put on some pretty good miles um, traversing the town, uh, doing a, a number of meetings. I'm, I'm also working, the reason I was there, I'm uh, working on a project um, with Shell Aviation uh, to uh, do some uh, thought leader interviews on what would it take to make aviation environmentally sustainable. It sounds like one of those oxymoronic um, questions, but it's really interesting. There's a, there is some, uh, There are some paths forward. And, do um, tell, do tell. Well, you know, I'll get into it uh, later because we'll be writing about this more and, and covering it. And then these uh, videos will be out in the, I think, next month or maybe later this month, November, actually. So we'll get into that later. But um, it's, it's a pretty interesting topic to really understand, you know, what it would take and, and what the commitments already are and how much they need to change and uh, accelerate. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm a little bit more hopeful about aviation. I'm still, um, it's still not ever going to be a green thing, but um, it can uh, move a lot further faster. So mm-hmm. uh, that was uh, DC. Then I got to see uh, some other colleagues and uh, had some great conversations. Oh, and <laughs> I happened upon, uh, because of where I went for dinner on uh, Tuesday night, Something that I used to love to see when I lived in D.C., uh, which is, and this is like the 35th year uh, running, literally, the high heel races. <laughs> what? So what the, is that? Well, on 17th Street, the uh, I guess the queens, we call them, the drag queens um, in Washington, of which there is a sizable population, um, dress up and um, first parade up and down the 17th Street, which they close off. 
and then there's an actual race. Uh, they were running down the street. <laughs> And uh, it's, it's, you know, no world records were broken, trust me, on this one, but it's pretty fun to watch. And, and it's a whole, like, four or five hours, because I was sitting at a restaurant right there outside. It was nice, a nice evening, and watching just the people, you know, it, just come and go, and it was, it's, it's quite the scene. So and I used probably to... probably laughing. People oh, probably yeah. were laughing in Washington, which is a nice thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it was something I, I, I used to go and see. Uh, whenever I could, uh, when I lived there, and 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 it just happened that uh, I was meeting someone who picked a restaurant that happened to be right there, and it was happening Tuesday night. It was it was mm-hmm. uh, a pleasant surprise. So check out the high heel races. There's probably lots of Twitter and Instagram, and who knows, maybe even a website. I haven't checked that mm-hmm. out. But anyway, enough. I have it. to ask you, Joel. I have to ask you because you flew back this week from being on the East Coast. You flew back into the Bay Area. You know, how is it out there? You you guys okay? It's uh, better now than it was earlier in the week. Uh, a lot of the fires are uh, under control or getting there. Air quality is better. The electricity's on. Um, so, but it wasn't that way all week. Uh, several of our green biz colleagues were in the dark for a, a day or two, or maybe three. Uh, uh, our house was spared. We were just on the edge of the uh, of the outage area. Um, but you know it's it's a it's an interesting time, and there's a, a, just a lot of you know rethinking about the California dream. There's a really interesting piece in the New York Times, just an op-ed piece by Farad Manju, who's one of the regular tech columnists, called "It's the End of California as We Know It," and and it really talks about the fires and the blackouts are connected to a larger problem in California, which is a failure failure to live sustainably. We've just, uh, you know, as green as the and lefty, I guess, politically as the, country, uh, the state seems to be, there's it's not a very sustainable lifestyle here in terms of driving and sprawl, housing, transportation systems, and, and things like that. And so there's a lot that needs to happen. And of course, there's the uh, you know, homelessness and, and forest management. So, you know, it's sort of as a slightly depressing for those of us who are natives here and have lived here for a long, long time and who frankly love living here, but it, it is a wake-up call, all of this, about uh, not just fire and electricity and forests and, and all of that, but just sort of how we're living. Um, so I, I'm hoping that if anything good comes out of it, it'll be that, and as well as the uh, a better understanding of resilient uh, electricity and energy systems, which we you know, took on at Verge last week. We had that uh, Grid Resilience Summit mm-hmm. in partnership with the California Governor's Office. So anyway, uh, interesting times, but um, not as perilous today, Friday, as it was on Monday. So let's go back editorially, at least, to the Week in Review. I will get us started this week, Joel, um, with a piece that we had about logistics. It was a there was a wonderful transportation track this year at Verge, and we, including one one of the themes of which was logistic, you know, decarbonizing shipping, decarbonizing logistics, and generally speaking. So, big focus on fleets and so forth. And um, we had a piece by one of our contributors, Casey O'Brien, on just just sort of the the number one, the inherent challenges, um, and, but number two, just how the, the sort of 
long time focus on efficiency because a lot of companies, a lot of really good companies are focusing on fuel efficiency. Why it's not quite enough, <laughs> not even not quite enough, but not nearly enough uh, to, to get us to where we need to be. So a number of uh, great companies that were there, uh, Maersk uh, was, was in, in attendance as well as DHL. Uh, we're talking about their their innovations, right? So how how they plan to invest in new technologies, including new fuels, but also uh, you know alternative fuels, and as well as uh, you know changes to things like ships. And we, you've you and I've talked a little bit in the past about just sort of the the very basic things you can do to ships to make them quicker and and to 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 stack more goods on them and to just sort of make them inherently more, I know efficient is not where we want to be, but you have to have to get to that first. So we, we had some good perspective from, from Etsy, which, which is, had that pioneering program they announced earlier this year to, to help their customers be carbon neutral. So help them and become, uh, you know, more responsible about all the e-commerce, you know, we, we, we e-commerce we know is, is a horrible, <laughs> it's a wonderful boon for consumerism, but it's a very uh, troubling, troubling development for transportation in general because there's more trucks on the road and more planes in the air getting packages all over the uh, the world. So, just a good a good synopsis by Casey on what was going on and the conversations at Verge last a couple weeks ago. Right. This is Casey O'Brien, a Green Biz contributor, uh, and one of the parts. I mean, this she brought together and wove together a number of pieces around ocean going shipping and 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 trucks as you said um and uh and then there's the last mile piece and 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 really i think you know one of the things that struck me most about all this was uh chelsea mosen who's the sustainability director uh for etsy uh, really nailed it i thought when she talked about you know that cons customer education is really key here because and this goes to what you were just saying heather that you know We've come to expect next day, same day, you know, two day, or whatever. Uh, when you know, once upon a time, it was eh, we'll get it in three, four, or five days, maybe a week. Uh, but we we now have this you know battle to you know for, for that last mile of getting it quicker, instantly, in in some cases, and that's the problem. And so, how do we? you know, or do we need to change those expectations of consumers? Do we need to help them understand, as you're saying, that that there is, turns out there's a price to this that you may not be paying now, but we're paying in other ways. And so that's, I think, the big problem because, uh, and I don't see us, I think we're going in the wrong direction there. I think uh, as, as this uh, arms race almost among, you know, Google and Amazon and UPS and FedEx and all the vendors, uh, that that sell through them are promising, you know, hey, you'll get it. Let's see, it's you know, noon now. You'll get it at, at one thirty. Um, we're we're just being conditioned to to have that, and I think it's going to be hard to turn away. So that that's concerning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was interesting. I was in a totally different session where the consumerism came up as a as a big concern, and and people kept bringing it. It, it is it, it is. We have conditioned people to want these things, and you know, and, and it's an easy thing to say, okay, we're going to, you know, do, do it. You can't say, take it away. You can't say you're going to take it away because that obviously doesn't work. And it's not a very uh, great communication strategy, but you can let people know they have an option. Like Amazon should be trumpeting 
the heck out of its prime delivery mechanism, right? Where you can actually combine shipments and you can choose to not get everything right on time. But they, it's kind of hidden. I mean, it's there, but it's not really just that transparent. And you get a um, dollar or two dollars off some future order, which yeah. is which is really not, you know, all that worth it. If you can, I don't know. I mean, it's a great idea. I love it. I use it, um, but it's just not something most people are going to think about. There's this last mile thing, but I, there's also just another big problem, right? For for especially for ships and and airplanes, if you will, because they're, they're not ruled by just one country. There's these international shipping laws that we have to dance around and it becomes so complicated as a, as a company. How do you navigate, no pun intended, those different laws and make sure that there's sort of industry collaboration around them? So it's that's part of, I think, the complexity is, is, is definitely one part of what's been holding people back a little bit um, right. from, from, from moving. Well, speaking of complexity, uh, I want to switch topics. There's this great piece by this uh, young up-and-coming uh, writer uh, named, um, oh, Heather Clancy, about the need to digitize traceability which, in the enabling the circular economy. I know that traceability and, and AI and, and so many of these technologies are right up your alley. So uh, what did you, you learn here? So I think I had this aha moment during Verge this year where, you know, we've been talking about supply chain traceability for a long time. We need more information. We need it to be digitized. We know it's very manual right now. There's very, it's very hard to find out information about a plant that's in some rural, rural area of China or even, even United States. I mean, you just don't know unless you go there. How do you find out what's, what's happening there is what you want to happen from a sustainability standpoint. But what really struck home for me this in this particular uh, set of conversations I, I was hearing was that there's no way we're going to get to be a truly circular economy unless we do do this. So, uh, you know, I, I, I know I talk about blockchain a lot. I don't necessarily think it is the solution or definitely not the only solution. But the fact that we just don't know so many things about the different elements of these value chains or supply chains or whatever you want to call them, I think really struck home for me. It was just one of those moments where I thought, oh, wow, you know, we really got to do this. Um, there's some really good work going on. Um, it's starting in, in different industries. Food is, there's a lot of work going on in food. Walmart in particular has been very focused on the safety element of it. But you see other areas cropping up. So, for, for example, fashion, right? So, and which definitely needs to get a, a handle on what it's doing in order to, to become more sustainable. There's uh, some interesting uh, identification schemes, right? You know, so the idea that you could take a piece of apparel, you could embed something into it. It could be an RID tag. It could be just some small thing that could track how, it's, how that piece of clothing is doing. So that, that sweater you, you buy and, and you have in your closet and, and um, it's being washed and how is it doing and could, is it wearing well? Is it, is, are the microplastics, <laughs> I mean, this is, I'm going crazy right now, but are the microplastics leaching out? You know, should you, should you now turn it in because you've washed it this many? There's, there's just all these different things you could do that, that we're not being able to do right now. And, and being able to do it um, in pretty much in every corner of the planet too, because you talk about um, the work that Sainsbury, the uh, um, British uh, retail chain, is doing uh, with small tea farmers in Malawi. And uh, you talk about scallop purveyor raw seafoods, how they're trying to 
uh, improve food traceability and safety. So this uh, fashion is one thing, and fashion is something I think we're going to be reading and writing a lot more about in the mm -hmm. coming because there's starting to finally be some attention paid to the and and measurements of the impact of fast fashion and and fashion waste in general. But I think just a lot of these things that we see every day that are you know come from far far away and the and for which the uh, supply chain has been pretty opaque. Um, I think that's really exciting that's uh, what's taking place here. So let's stick with the circular economy because this week there was a significant announcement from uh, the major U.S. beverage brands, Coke, Pepsi, and Keurig Dr. Pepper, to uh, collaborate on how do you cut back waste across the industry. They announced something called the Every Bottle Back Initiative where all three of those companies are going to invest in collection schemes, infrastructure so for recycling, so they can um, bring back more and more bottles. They're going to invest, uh, I think, $400 million into uh, the recycling partnership uh, and closed-loop partners. Uh, but I think that's uh, it, what's interesting about it is how controversial the announcement mm -hmm. was. Um, and it wasn't simply like, oh, great, these companies are leaning in and putting their money where their mouth is. And make, trying to make a positive difference, which I think the companies would have, that would have been the storyline, the narrative they would have preferred. But from the environmental group side, there was just uh, lots and lots of announcements and press releases and comments saying, you know what, this is just perpetuating the current model, and that's not sustainable. Uh, we need to get away from disposable plastics. We need to get into more durable or reusable or other kinds of containers. So this is one of those situations where, um, you know, there's definitely two sides to this story in terms of uh, how much uh, companies should be doing, uh, how good is good enough, as I've always liked to say, but also, you know, how much of a change is it just about taking the current unsustainable model and making it, if you will, less unsustainable, or do we need a new model? And that's the big question. Yeah, you know, what's interesting is, for me, is that I don't know about Keurig Dr. Pepper, but I know both Coca-Cola and PepsiCo have these really innovative businesses that are focusing on refillable beverages, right? So these dispensing stations that they're putting into place and at universities is one example, um, encouraging the reuse, reusable containers um, and so forth. So part of me really likes the collaboration here, right? Because that is what it will take to get real progress. But I do have to question, you know, one of the big things, components of this is a big public awareness campaign. Well, you know, people are kind of publicly aware that there's a need to get rid of bottles, but they just can't and don't and, and they buy them. And, and so it feels like, I feel, yeah, I feel, it feels like almost like they're going to, I don't know, it feels like version 2.0 of the same sort of message we've been hearing about. Um, individually, at least, from these companies. Yes, it's together. And it's spearheaded, spearheaded by the American Beverage Association. So that is good. Um, but I do, I agree. It's just sort of, for me, it's like one of these, oh, let's have more details. Let's see where you're investing. Let's hear about it. Let's see where, where it's happening. What communities? They, they talk about some, some communities want to do some. Where? Where? Let's get, let's, let's see it. Let's see it in action. I'll drink to that. So 
I wanted to commend you again, Joel, on the wonderful session that you moderated to close out Verge 19 this year on the kids are more than all right. It was just such a tremendously insightful and powerful panel of young women who are youth leaders in their respective communities. Um, I, first of all, I want you to just tell me a little bit about the individuals that you were interviewing. And then I, I would love to play just a big chunk of, of this session because I feel like the, the audience that wasn't there really will appreciate some of their advice. Yeah, so this was a panel put together by our colleague Shauna Rappaport. Uh, really um, just these amazing women. Uh, there was Dakota Iron Eyes, who is an uh, indigenous youth leader and advocate at the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe, and she's also part of a company called Indigenized Energy. Uh, she has uh, been at uh, Standing Rock, involved with that in the Dakota Access Pipeline since the very beginning, and um, she travels around the world, speaks about indigenous issues. So uh, she was fabulous. There was uh, Marlo Baines, who is the uh, global crew director, is her title, for an organization called Earth Guardians. That's part of the uh, the organization that is uh, involved with the Juliana versus the United States. This is the lawsuit filed by a number of years ago by a group of youth uh, basically talking about that climate change is depriving a whole generation of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that's been working its way through the courts uh, so far successfully. It's, an, it's, it's hard to know where that's going. And then uh, the hometown favorite, uh, Isha Clark, who is a youth organizer for an organization called Youth Versus Apocalypse. And she's uh, born and raised right here in Oakland, California, and has a uh, uh, been doing a lot of work uh, related to environmental justice and how in, in environmental problems disproportionately affect uh, people of color and low incomes, young people. And you may have seen her in a vi video that went uh, pretty viral, I guess, uh, of a, a group going in and confronting Senator Dianne Feinstein in her office around the Green New Deal. And Senator Feinstein uh, didn't respond all that well. And uh, Isha was one of the the spokespeople there who was just talking truth to power. And so uh, it was a great group. And we had this conversation sort of looked at how they're thinking about things and how they're, you know, how they came to these roles. Uh, very, very inspirational. W what did you take away? Yeah, well, well, I just thought they were all so eloquent and so powerfully insightful for their age. It just made me really sit up and, and think about yeah, and, how... And, and, uh, and, and yeah. I didn't mention they're all like 16 and 17 years old. Yeah. Um, so they're, yeah. They're, they're, these are uh, uh, not young, young people, but they're um, definitely you know, high school age and um, yeah, amazingly, amazingly articulate. And as I pointed out, that it wasn't just articulate, but wise. Yeah, very wise. And I just thought it would be really appropriate for us to play, given, given that setup. One of the, the questions towards the end of the session, you, you, Joel, you asked them to comment on what they would ask of the business community and, and everyone out there listening. We've got this uh, room full of uh, a thousand or so uh, business leaders, uh, policy leaders, entrepreneurs, investors, and uh, thousands more watching this on, on the live stream. Uh, what's the message? What do you want to tell them? What do you want them to know about what you and Isha and Takata are doing that, that they, they don't maybe yet understand? 
This issue can feel so hard and daunting sometimes. Um, it's not always gratifying. Um, you can feel very alone in this. And yet when we come into these spaces and we're saying we're willing to stand up for a more just and sustainable future and we're going to create that together, that's where the power and the hope and the, the continue to fight for, for this almost freedom uh, comes from. And so, you know, what I would say to all of you, and I think Isha said it perfectly, is we need mentors, you know? If you all have like resources or have 30 years of business experience, then that's, that's what we need, you know? Because we can work together, we can talk, we can like give that hope, but at the same time, we need those people who have 30 years of, uh, of, of business experience or you're an entrepreneur or you know how to write uh, public speeches. And that is where we will begin to create this kind of regenerative cycle because then you're also rising up with the youth. The youth then will all of a sudden one day be a part of the workforce and think about how magical and powerful that is to be intergenerationally working together. Mm. Um, Takata, what would you like the Verge audience to know? Um, I think one of the biggest things that anybody can learn from this youth climate movement right now, um, being built on in the work of indigenous black and brown communities. Um, I think the biggest thing that we can learn um, is the fact that it is an issue of priorities, the climate crisis. Because when we want to talk about economic growth over people having clean water and the right to a livable future and planet, um, that is a sign that something is wrong. And so when we're talking about the climate crisis, we're not talking about something abstract. We're not talking about something that is far away from us or apart from us. We're directly talking about the things that exist in this world that made us who we are today. Mm. All of us need clean water and air to breathe. It's a personal issue for every single person in this room. Mm. So when we talk about these communities far away that are already being affected, so are you. Because there, there's this um, saying in, in, in my language, it says, it means we are all related. And a lot of people translate this as recognizing the people next to you as your brother and sister, but it's farther than that. It means that everything that exists right now is a part of us. Because genetically, because on a chemical level, the things, the particles that build up everything around us still built us up too. Mm -hmm. Being able to recognize that nature and the earth and the systems that it's already created are older than us. Being able to nourish our relationship with this autonomous being with its own life force. Being able to recognize that in the first place is going to be essential. It's a mindset switch that we all have to make if we want to be able to create actual change. Mm -hmm. Because if we, because we can talk about lowering carbon emissions all we want. But if we're not prioritizing people, if we're not prioritizing their problems and their lifestyles, we're not creating sustainable solutions. Yeah. Right now, indigenous peoples, indigenous communities have been maintaining and protecting 80% of the world's remaining biodiversity. Mm. So if we're not talking about protecting their ways of life, if we're not talking about protecting their rights, we are not talking about solutions. Yeah. I want to get to some questions, but Isha, uh, what's, what's your message to the Verge community? What do you want them to know? 
Yeah. Um, I what, do you, think what do you need from them? <laughs> two main things that I have to say. Um, one, to echo what Tokata just said, that we have to recognize the intersectionality of this fight. We have to recognize that this climate crisis is directly fueled by white supremacy, by racism, by greed, by economic exploitation, by all of these things. I could continue. I'm sure you know the rest. And that this fight in reversing the climate crisis is about completely reimagining the way that we exist in this world, in a world that doesn't have racism or white supremacy or um, is constantly focusing on ex um, woo, economic growth, like Tokata just said, that it's not just about the physical things like lowering carbon emissions. It's about seeing the person next to you as a human being. It's about undoing all of these systemic things that are existing that have created this climate crisis. So we always have to be thinking about fighting for migrant rights, fighting for economic freedom, fighting for livable wages for all, saying that black lives matter. All of these things are connected to this fight against the climate crisis. The second thing that I have to say is, if we really want to get to a place where we reverse this climate crisis because it's a foundational change, we have to recognize the people that are in the room when decisions are being made and when solutions are being created. We need people from frontline communities who are experiencing the direct impacts of climate change to be pioneering the solutions. We need indigenous people in those spaces who are showing us how to live and care for the land because they've been doing that since the beginning of time. And so I challenge all of you, when you're in your workspaces, look around, who's around you? When you're having conversations about things that are impacting communities, do you see anyone from those communities that are in the building? And if not, then something needs to change. Because if we don't have people who are experiencing this on a day-to-day -day basis, then we're gonna continue to repeat and repeat the same thing over again, and we're gonna be back exactly where we are right now. So thinking about fundamental change. That's what this is. And we have a unique opportunity to be able to do that right now. Chris Homer co-founded ThreadUp in 2009 and serves today as the company's chief technology officer. Over the last 10 years, he and his co-founders built the team behind the world's largest online thrift store. With 3.5 million items in inventory and 1.5 million items in and out every month across four distribution centers, the ThreadUp marketplace is a highly dynamic and rich data playground. Chris, thank you for joining GreenBiz 350. It's great to be here. So you're responsible for engineering and data science at ThreadUp. What role does machine learning play in helping the organization manage supply, pricing, and payouts? Describe an application where it is central. Sure. Um, so data is integral to everything we do. Uh, as part of building up our platform uh, to power resale, apparel resale, 
Uh, we made a conscious effort right from the beginning to design everything with collecting a very sound and accurate data set from beginning to end. That could be how we think about suppliers and segmentation and targeting and promotion to uh, as we inspect items and put them online, uh, judging their quality, saleability, the likelihood of sale from like a photograph to extracting attributes from those items. Um, to then uh, how we market and promote them to our customers all through that chain of events, all through that life cycle. Uh, we're using machine learning and data to power the decisions that make it uh, work for the customer. Would you be able to do the scale you're doing without artificial intelligence? Well, the scale that we're at is accepting 35,000 brands and, as you said, millions of items coming into our facility every single month. And so I think the answer generally is no, but we started very manual. So when you think back to our history, we had everybody in the DCs, myself included, right from day one, figuring out how are we going to scale this system. And over time, as we learned it manually, we learned where are the places where technology, where machine learning and data can bring some level of automation and leverage to the people in the distribution centers, to today where it's really a, a partnership between the data, the algorithms, the systems, and our associates in the distribution centers to deliver the service. So you mentioned the data. So could you give me a, a sense of the types of data? So like these photographs, are they you know, size information? I mean, like what sorts of stuff is this? Sure, it's, it's a great question. So when we're talking about our inventory, we're f photographing it, we're tagging a quality, what condition is it in? If there's a problem, what is that problem? Is it pilling? Is it a, a small stain? How visible is it? So pieces of data like that to the attributes about the clothing, like a size, a category, a neckline, materials, um, all sorts of things that we can get to know about the item. And behind that is a photo. And so as we take that photo, we try and extract those attributes ourselves. But where we can't get it from the photo, there's then a human involved in, in collecting that data. So that's from the items point of view. When we think about what then happens on the website or the mobile apps, there's all the interaction data about what's being clicked, what's being added to cart, at what point in time, how fast. And that all then feeds into our pricing algorithm and discounting algorithm and promotion algorithm so that we can decide of the three and a half million items in inventory, what do we show you to help you uh, have an easier time? Nobody wants to wade through three and a half million items. And so we want to cut that down based on what you've said to us either directly or implicitly through your actions to try and make it easier to have a great and easy treasure hunt through our, our facility. One of the, I think, attractive things about, especially attractive things about ThreadUp is that you're part of this fashion industry, the apparel industry, which is known as is having some uh, a troubled, if you will, cli climate uh, footprint. Um, lots of Fast fashion is, is, is an issue and in, in, in the sort of disposability of it. And secondhand clothing is a big deal. And, and lots of uh, customers and consumers are thinking about this as a way of addressing their own uh, impact. So you're obviously in this business as a secondhand provider, clothing provider. Do, do your customers at this point care about climate metrics? And how do you think maybe in the future you might address some of their, their interests in that? The way we look at it is is most people care about it to a certain extent, and some care about it a lot. Uh, one thing that I think we've taken on in our mission is to try and um, make 
more clear and transparent what happens in the industry, the impact that the resale industry can have. And we do that through, we've done it through multiple years through our resale report where we talk about trends in the business as well as the impact that, that we're having. Uh, and then what we're also starting to do is talk about as people clean out their closets, um, the stats about what they're cleaning out, that impact, and trying to make that more transparent. One of the really interesting things that uh, people don't realize is that um, when they re- when they reuse an item. So instead of an item just being used once, if it gets used a second time, that's reducing the carbon footprint of that item by 82%. Imagine using it a third time, a fourth time. And so the more circular these these pieces of apparel are, and the more times they get reused, the lesser impact overall it has on the environment. Just curious, are your ThreadUp customers sending items back to you for resale again? Is that happening a lot, or maybe you're too young to really know that yet? We definitely see signs that it's happening. We don't, uh, at this point, tag everything with an RFID or barcode that makes it certain, but we absolutely can see in the data that that happens. And um, I think one of the real big benefits of resale is you can have the freshness and variety of fast fashion without the negative impact that fast fashion brings. So I think a lot of consumers have gotten used to the idea that they can find whatever they want, whenever they want, and to do that, they have to kind of share some information, right? So they have to share their preferences in some way, and that many of the sites they visit will be collecting some sorts of information about them, you know, with their knowledge, hopefully. Uh, so how do you address the, the concern over sort of, number one, security, right? So privacy and security issues, but also data bias, right? So like, how do you make sure that you're collecting the right sorts of information from the right demographics, like everyone. Um, You don't want the data set to be skewed. That's obviously one of the biggest challenges with artificial intelligence. How do you go about uh, protecting against that at ThreadUp? It's a great question and something we care deeply about. The the trust that we build with our customer uh, is really important uh, over the long term. And so we take great care in how we treat the data, how we store the data, and, and protect them Uh, in their journey with us. Uh, In terms of of bias that can come into models or decisions, if you think about the fact that our model uh, with 35,000 brands being accepted, the breadth and variety of customer and diversity of customer that that then uh, implies means that we have to be really uh, careful as we're designing these models. We can't just think about our customer as a monolithic customer. We have to think about uh, hyper-segmented, targeted uh, groups and how they shop and make sure that we're getting it right. That doesn't mean we get it right every time. That doesn't mean we don't make mistakes, but it means that we need to learn from them and we need to iterate and we need to be very uh, attentive to the feedback we're getting from customers as well as doing our own quality assurance in, in our models to see, try and find those problems before we even put them in front of customers. What advice would you give to an organization that's hoping to use machine learning in their own operations? What would you tell them to do or not do? I think at the top of the list is make sure the data that you are collecting is uh, of of high enough quality. That means make sure it's well-structured, easily accessed, and and used in systems, as well as make sure that as you're recording and collecting it, you're not introducing too many mistakes. One of the most costly things as you embark on machine learning uh, projects is to go back and and QA and clean up all the data, to, to really design a clean training set. And so the more you can put in up front to make sure what you're collecting and generating uh, is of high enough quality, the more easy that transition to using more advanced algorithms will be. (music) 
Last week, the Nonprofit Group Series launched a new initiative to ramp up efforts to insulate capital markets against the worst financial impacts of the global climate crisis and other sustainability threats. The Series Accelerator for Sustainable Capital Markets aims to make and strengthen the business case for integrating sustainability into capital markets. And here to tell us more about that is Series CEO and President Mindy Luber. Hi, Mindy. Hey, Joel. Thanks for having me on. So talk a little bit about what led Series to create the Series Accelerator. Well, look, we all know that the crisis of the climate, of water shortages, climate change, are upon us. And we're looking at them straight in the eye. We're making some progress, but not enough. Uh, And that impacts of climate and what it means is not only an impact on our planet, on our families, on our children, our environment, on our real estate, um, but it's the impact on our economic markets. And there are many companies and many investors who one by one are starting to analyze climate risk as they think about where to invest their money and where not to invest. But it's a slow slog. Not everybody's doing it. Um, not all the right systems are out there to do it. And in the end, we need a level playing field. We can move company by company. We could move investor by investor. But the regulators have a very clear role to play. Of credit risk agencies are not factoring in climate risk into their analysis of companies, uh, then they're not really getting the full picture and they're not doing their job. And we could easily see what we saw in the financial crisis in 2008. If the Securities and Exchange Commission, whose very job it is to provide for investors the appropriate financial information and the strength of a company, any publicly traded company has to file forms and talk about their risks and their opportunities. And if their full level of risks aren't out there, then investors, frankly, don't have the information they need. So the goal of this is, look, we've got to continue moving companies and we've got to continue moving investors. But in the end, we've got to change the rules of the road and we've got to have policies in place that do things like put a price on carbon because carbon has a cost to our financial systems. And we've got to make sure that cost is factored into rating agencies, stock exchanges, what the SEC demands, and frankly, what the Federal Trade, what the Federal Reserve System does. You know, the Federal Reserve has to look at systemic risks to our economy. It's being done by federal agencies and Federal Reserve banks in other parts of the world, but not here. It, it seems a challenging time to take on the SEC, given the political let's just say, lack of interest in climate change uh, by the administration. Um, How is that going to work? What's the accelerator going to do that others haven't been able to do to get the SEC understanding the the risk to capital markets from the climate crisis? I don't expect this to change the world in the next 15 months. There's no regulatory change, no policy change that has been done in 15 months. But we've got to start the debate. We've got to make the case. We've got to show the analysis. We've got to show the economics. We've got to be meeting with the commissioners, whether it's the SEC or the state feds or the national fed. Uh, We've got to bring the right players in to make the case. And that will all be happening. And yes, administrations come and go. And presumably there may be a different set of commissioners at the SEC a year and a half from now or two years from now. But we've got to make this financial case and whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, 
we need to care about the fact that our economic system could be four times more fragile than it was and seen four times the greater impact than what we saw in 2008 due to climate risk and its impact across our economy. I mean, not acting on climate risks, $23 trillion of global economic losses a year. That could result in permanent economic damage four times greater than the impact of the 2008 financial crisis. And places like the Federal Reserve, their job is to look at systemic risk to our economy, make sure it's noted, make sure it's acted on. And that's what we're seeing from the Bank of England, the Bank of France. We're not seeing it here. And it's a crucial part of the debate and has to be a crucial part of what the next round of regulatory changes look like. One of the challenges uh, we see is the sheer number of standards and frameworks that for companies to report their sustainability impacts to large asset owners, the uh, Black Rocks and State Streets and the like. Is simplifying and harmonizing that part of the equation or part of the work that the accelerator is going to do? Well, it's simplifying and harmonizing, but it's also making it mandatory. Every other major risk to our economy, and I said it in testimony before the Congress a couple months ago, if you're looking at currency risk or trade risk, those risks across the board, because of the magnitude of them, they're required to be disclosed and they are being disclosed. Somehow climate risk has a special category of a little environmental area of the regulatory agencies. Climate risk is as big a financial risk as any other risk we face, and addressing it and acting on it from a financial basis ought to be mandatory and not voluntary. Other kinds of risks are not voluntary. We ought not to have some do it and others not. We need a level playing field. All companies should be bound by the same rules, all investors and so while we've got lots of voluntary standards, and I'm supportive of many of them and have helped build many of those, these risks are fundamental financial risks to the economic grounding of our economy, and they need to be addressed in that very way. And the mandatory risks that are out there that are being addressed, climate is right up there, and we ought not to put it in a little side bucket of deal with it as an environmental problem. It is a fundamental economic issue of our time, and we want to make sure we get at it early rather than see the kind of economic crisis we saw in 2008, because we ignored a risk that was right in front of us. We've both been seeing the rise of uh, interest in uh, environmental, social, and governance uh, metrics on the part of mainstream investors. Uh, but, but that seems to be uh, at the individual investment by investment level. I don't yet see that the investment community writ large sees climate as existential. I think they see it as a risk for specific investments. Uh, are, are you seeing that level of concern? Uh, well, that's exactly what we need to do when I'm talking about here. We're seeing more concern on the part of corporate boards, corporate leadership, and we're seeing more concern on the part of many of the large institutional investors. But it is still piece by piece, one by one. In the end, every company should be playing by a set of rules and every investor should be playing by a set of rules and those rules should be consistent and they should be clear and they should be part of our regulatory framework. It's not about making up rules, but it's about rules that are clear and can command compliance because regulatory agencies also have enforcement decisions. Now, this is not meant to be about enforcement, but we've got to integrate climate risk across our economic 
market influencers. If credit rating agencies are not fully integrating, and Joel, I'll tell you, we've made a lot of progress. They are starting to integrate climate risk and water risk. But if they're not fully integrating those risks into their analysis of companies and the ratings they give those companies, then that's problematic. Uh, They ought to be implementing and integrating all of those risks across the board. If the Federal Reserve is responsible for looking at systemic risk to our economy, where are the big issues that could cause a crack in our economy in ways we don't want to learn or see, then it's the role of the Federal Reserve to identify those risks and lay out the responsibilities for action. If the SEC's job is to make sure that every publicly traded company provides the right information for the investors so they can make smart decisions on who to invest in and who not to invest in, then climate risk needs to be integrated. And again, yes, we're seeing some change. Some companies are disclosing, others aren't. We want to make sure that there's a policy that applies to everybody across the board. And that's why regulatory agencies have a very clear role. Uh, And looking at and integrating these issues, the time has come. Uh, despite the voluntary progress that we're all quite proud of and that we're seeing every day. So what will we be seeing happening first from the series accelerator? Well, we'll probably be seeing better analysis about the role of the Fed, what's happening in Europe, what's happening elsewhere, and why the systemic risk to our economy is clear. We're working with economists and others to make that case. We'll see more work at the SEC. We'll see more testimony before Congress on these very issues. And you know, you ask a good question, is the SEC going to do this next week or in the next six months? Probably not. But but let's also remember, Joel, these issues have got to rise above the political. And I'm not naive. I don't know who chooses different commissioners. But in the end, building a future, a, an economy that is strong enough to withstand these risks, the potential $23 trillion of global risks a year, Um, That's in everybody's interest, as is, frankly, acting on climate change. And it is our job collectively to help take this out of the ghetto of politics, uh, and only Democrats should like it and Republicans shouldn't, and into the fact that this is about the strength of our economy moving forward. The subprime meltdown affected Republicans and Democrats alike. It was not a liberal issue or a conservative issue. It profoundly hurt all of us. Climate risk and climate change is profoundly having an impact on my kids' future's life. Uh, And we want to make these issues, make the case that it is about all of us and not only about some political parties. So I'm realistic. I don't think the SEC is going to move in the next two months. Uh, But these issues take a long time to bring to the fore. And we want to be making the case, building the economic case, meeting with the commissioners, uh, and making sure it's on. It is on the program as future commissioners come in. Yeah, well, a series has always been in, the, in this for the long game. And on that note, uh, th- congratulations on your celebration of your 30th anniversary. Mindy Luber is the CEO and president of Series and uh, the new Series Accelerator for Sustainable Capital Markets. Thanks so much, Mindy. Thank you, Joel. Take care. This year's Verge Conference hosted several high-profile partner events, including the Awards and Innovation Showcase for the Clean Tech Open, which culminated in an award ceremony on October 24th. 
Here to chat with me about the event is Ken Hayes, Executive Director of Clean Tech Open. Welcome to Green Biz 350. Thank you for having us. It's, I'm delighted to be online here. So though, for those of us not familiar with your organization, give us a quick thumbnail of what you do. Sure. So Clean Tech Open is a business accelerator for early stage innovative startups. And uh, the accelerator has been around since 2005. It started in the Bay Area, in fact. Uh, and we currently work with about 100 companies a year across the country. And it's a great opportunity for entrepreneurs who have developed some kind of innovative technology, and about 85% of the companies have a hardware technology, that, uh, but they need uh, help learning how to build a business and how to do customer discovery and how to create a financial model, how to understand their IP and, uh, consequences and things like that. And we match these entrepreneurs to business mentors. They can be generalist mentors, they can be technical specialists, and all of our mentors are, are pro bono professionals. They're volunteering their time to work with these entrepreneurs over a 10-week period, which is the course of our accelerator. And that starts in the, in the springtime with a two-day boot camp and runs through the summer. And here in the fall, we have a series of regional showcases and finals events of which the Western Region event happened at Verge. And we're really happy to work with Verge and partner with, uh, with that uh, conference. And uh, we named uh, six uh, regional winners and then we're all gonna get together in Los Angeles at the Global Forum here in November. So there's six regions total, uh, 100 companies, wow. Is that a lot? Like, is that way more than in the past? Or tell me about that. You know, it has gone, it has gone up and down. Uh, you know, in, in the mid-2000s, when CleanTech Open started, there were not a lot of accelerators. And CleanTech Open was one of the first accelerators to adopt the business model canvas kind of customer discovery lean startup methodology that Steve Blank uh, really uh, popularized. But I would say the distinction for Cleantech Open is that we are focused on companies in the sustainability space. They have to have an element of improving resource usage, uh, reducing energy, things like that. And like I said, most of them are hardware related, and that distinguishes us from a lot of the other accelerators that, uh, that are out there. You know, 100 companies is, uh, is a really a handful, <laughs> no question about it. We had 42 in, uh, in the West uh, this, uh, this season, for example. So 42 just in, the, in that one region. Wow. Okay. Well, that makes sense. I mean, I suppose. Um, I mean, just given the, the state of entrepreneurship in California and, and the Western region in general, I, I, you know, clean tech's a very broad term. <laughs> so what sorts of technologies do you, do you typically showcase and, and what's the criteria? So like you, you mentioned sort of sustainability and so forth before. You mentioned a lot of hardware as well. So what's the criteria used to, to help select sure. the, the, the folks that you're going to actually highlight? Yeah, you know, the, typically the uh, applicants for Clean Tech Open are small startups, usually there are two, three, five people. Um, they've raised less than a million dollars of equity. They may have received more money in, in grant funding and certainly a lot of research. A number of companies have spun out of academic research. And they typically fall in one of our eight categories, which is energy generation, 
distribution and storage and energy efficiency. Then we have green building, the built environment, advanced transportation, agriculture, water waste, chemicals and advanced materials, and then information and communication technologies. It's kind of the catch-all for the software mm-hmm. software companies. Um, and you know, increasingly over the last few years, uh, companies have their technologies that go across multiple categories. I mean, you might find a water filtration company that's also reduces energy usage. And uh, so we're seeing more and more companies that are integrating technologies across these categories. So we try not to be so dogmatic about what category the company is in. Um, we, we're really looking for a lot, a lot of our entrepreneurs are technical specialists and they're looking to improve uh, their business skills, really understand uh, how to build a company, how to attract perhaps more traditional business people into their, uh, into their venture. And that's what clean tech open is about. We mm-hmm. are not a test bed. We're not actually working with technologies nor validating the exact technology. We're more about helping entrepreneurs discover how to build a great business. So two more questions just to keep poking into the types of companies you mentioned entrepreneurs. Are they typically first time entrepreneurs or do you see a lot of repeat people? Well, that's a great question. I mean, you know, classic Silicon Valley is, you know, early 20s uh, fellows that are, that are starting some company. Actually, I think over half of our entrepreneurs are in their 30s and 40s and, and a number even older than that. These are people that are typically successful professionals and they may have been working in a, in a technical field for a number of years and have been going and working on, on some of these innovations on the side or because they perceived a need in the, in the marketplace or, or a gap. And they're using Cleantech Open as a way to accelerate their understanding of the potential of the business. You know, we have, I, I have a lot of friends who've been entrepreneurs that have been, you know, turning over an idea for years and years in their head and playing around with it. Finally, their spouse says, look, enough, either make a business or go back to your regular job. Cleantech Open helps those entrepreneurs figure out, do they have the potential? And we do that in a very, very short amount of time. To get back to the regional thing here a moment, I'm also curious about whether you see different sorts of priorities in different sorts of regions. You know, you mentioned you have a lot of different technologies you're looking at. Do you tend to see little hotbeds of uh, innovation depending on where you are and and, and the, the companies that are kind of bubbling up there? What we see on the on the coasts are primarily energy relate energy and water related startups. So what we see in the middle of the country is a lot of ag tech uh, improving agricultural efficiency, and it's it's really fascinating to see. Six of our sixteen national finalists this year are in the ag tech uh, space, and uh, that's a really really hot new area that's growing. Okay, so that gets me to last week's event. Tell us about the six companies that presented in the Western Regional Finals last week. Yeah, that's right. So as I mentioned, we started with 42 companies in the West, and the, we ended up with uh, three winners and three runners-up, and all six of them will represent the West in the, at our global forum. So among the winners, we had uh, Crossno K, which is a uh, industrial controls uh, software company in improving energy uh, usage in, in industrial processes. We had Oasense, which is a smart showerhead that senses water use, usage and adjusts that. And then we had Swirltext, which is a tubular membrane technology. They actually created a, a filter 
that improves the treatment of wastewater. So you can see those are three very, very different companies. And congratulations to them. The, the three runners up were Radi Robotics, which is an aerial robot, not just a drone, but actually a robot that, ha that has tools that can actually work on and sense situations within industrial equipment, uh, windmills, uh, things like that. Repurpose Energy was reusing electric uh, vehicle batteries to store solar energy. So that's like taking, taking some existing equipment and, and repurposing it. And then we had SkyCool Systems, which is a technology uh, on the roof uh, connected to solar, which uh, improves the efficiency of air conditioning and refrigeration systems. So you can see there, it's a very broad spectrum of companies that won here in, in the West. So tell me, what's next? So at, at the conclusion of these regional events, uh, we have a, 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 our capstone event. We've called it the Academy Awards of Clean Tech, uh, but that may be, uh, that's a pretty large word. But we invite all of the companies of the cohort, as well as our alumni, and we also have a series of global companies uh, through partners we work with overseas that invite, we invite all these companies to our global forum. This year, the Global Forum will be uh, at the USC campus in Los Angeles, and we will have investors uh, come in from around the country, corporate partners, uh, the companies themselves, mentors, other uh, people interested in the, in the industry, and the companies will showcase, they will go through uh, workshops, uh, they will be, the 16 finalists will be judged for the national prize. We do innovation tours to really, really interesting locations around Los Angeles. Everything at Global Forum is geared to help these entrepreneurs get to the next level and understand what is the next stage in their evolution. What are the incubators or uh, state challenges and other opportunities that are out there for companies once they've learned if they have what it if they have what it takes, and that's what Global Forum is about. It's a great event. There's a lot of energy. Uh, people love to attend it, and we would love to invite GreenBiz listeners uh, to to that as well. And it will be in Los Angeles, November 11th and 12th. Thank you so much, Ken, for for visiting us here on GreenBiz 350. Thank you, Heather. Thank you so much. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week. Check out our free e-newsletters while you're over there. Uh, we publish a different one Monday through Friday. That's five weekly newsletters and all. You can go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.